0: In our second semester of seminary, Stephanie and I completed a course called the Introduction to Preaching. It was a required course for all wannabe preachers like ourselves. A key component of this course, you'll never guess, it was preaching. (laughs) But here's something that may actually surprise you about this course. Instead of being evaluated and graded by our preaching professor... We were evaluated and graded by our peers. The competition was on. (laughs) As I prepared for my sermon for my peers, I I did what I still do to this day. I I read the text, I prayed through the text, I read the commentaries. But I also did something else as I got ready for the preaching competition. (laughs) At least that's what it felt like to me. Here's what I did. I I worked hard to find something that would wow my peers, a story, an illustration, a profound insight about the text or about God that no one had ever thought of in the history of interpreting the Bible. My motive was simple. I wanted my peers to think well of me. Specifically, I wanted them to think that I was a great preacher. I longed for their compliments, I dreaded their critiques. My heart was full of what the ancients call vainglory. Vainglory. And that's not a good thing. (laughs) I did not win that sermon competition, as you probably guessed. My wife did. (laughs) Actually, we all lost. (laughs) We all lost because we had turned something sacred into something sacrilegious. We all lost because we had turned a time-honored spiritual practice into a performance. Instead of preaching for the glory of God, we preached for our own glory, our own esteem, our own reputation. What we had yet to learn as young aspiring preachers is precisely what Jesus teaches us in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches us to live without vainglory. So I've titled today's talk, Learning to Live Without Vainglory. Now, before we read our scripture text, I want to do two things. First, I want to define the word vainglory, because it's not a word you hear in everyday conversation anymore. And second, I want to rap about it. So first, let's define the word vainglory. I've chosen to, to use this word despite its unfamiliarity, because there's no word that captures the essence of Jesus' next teaching quite like it. So let's, let's break it down. It's a compound word, vain, glory. I had to go to seminary for that kind of insight. <laughs> vain, glory. We all know what these words mean, right? She's so vain, we might hear someone say, which means what? It means she's, she's full of vanity. She's obsessed with her image and appearance, with how she appears to others. So that's the vain part. Now, the second part, glory. We use the word glory all the time in religious circles, don't we? we? We use the word glory to mean what? To mean public praise, honor, or fame. It's a beautiful and appropriate word when directed toward God. It becomes ugly and untrue when aimed at ourselves apart from God. So put them together. Vain to be overly concerned with one's image, plus glory, honor, renown equals vain glory, to be overly concerned with receiving honor, praise, and recognition from others. To be overly concerned with receiving recognition from others. That's the ancient vice that has become normal in our culture. That's the ancient vice that has ruined countless lives, both the lives of those seeking fame at all costs and the lives trampled upon people as they make their way to the top. But Jesus wants us to live without it. So that's the definition of of vain glory. That's where we're headed today. But now that I've defined it, I want to rap about it. And can I just say I love that you don't actually know if I'm about to rap right now or not. (laughs) I like to keep you guessing, keep you on your toes. So here's the rap about Vainglory, but for your sake, I'll just read it to you. It's a rap song called Light Tunnels by one of my brother's favorite artists, Macklemore. I don't expect you to know the name or even to like rap, but I think we can all appreciate the spirit and the heart of what he's getting at. So in this song, Macklemore talks about Vainglory He talks about vainglory as he he describes the time, the first time he was invited to to his first ever music awards show, the Grammys, which he won a Grammy, by the way, in 2014. So McLemore begins the song by talking about how he was just captivated by all the fame and the makeup and the, the spectacle of the Grammys. And he says, this is his rap, he says, The show is starting, they take me to my seat. I walk into the arena, feel the ego of elites. Like the whole industry is staring at me, a row away from Taylor, two away from J and B. And then he later describes what this music awards show is really about. In other words, he does what Jesus is about to do for us. He exposes the heart of it. He strips off the veneer of celebrity culture and reveals what's underneath. And he says, so we Botox our skin and we smile for the camera. Might as well get a new nose while we're at it. This is America. Insecurities are fabric, and we wear it, and we renamed it fashion. (laughs) That, my friends, is vainglory. And Macklemore is right. It is an especially massive problem in America. Listen to that last line again. He says, this is America. Insecurities are fabric, and we wear it, and we renamed it fashion. (laughs) So we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, And we pick up where we left off last week with Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, my friends. Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 1, Be careful that you don't practice your religion in front of people to draw their attention. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Let's stop and camp there a while before traveling further. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This first verse is the the thesis, the big idea of what Jesus is trying to communicate in the next 17 verses. So as he does throughout his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus first emphasizes the importance of one's heart. So for instance, when it comes to murder, Jesus wants us to think about Anger and the way it grows out of a heart that's afraid of losing control. When it comes to adultery, Jesus wants us to think about our heart's deepest desires, which can only be satisfied in God, but which are often satisfied in lust and only for a very short time. So now Jesus is at the place in his sermon where he he keeps with this theme of the heart. He moves on to the topic of our personal devotions, our religion. So when it comes to being Christian, Jesus wants us to think about our hearts. In chapter 6, he's addressing yet another issue of the heart. So, specifically, what's going on? What's he doing here? Jesus wants us to to ponder the, the hidden motives we have for being good Christians. He wants us to examine the real reasons that drive our religious behavior, the actual reasons that we serve in the church or do good in the community. Be careful, Jesus says, that you don't practice your religion in front of people to draw their attention. Now, that last phrase is the crux of the matter, to draw their attention. What Jesus is criticizing is is the act of doing something religious with the intent of drawing others' attention to it. In other words, he's criticizing the vice of vainglory that controls and enslaves human hearts. Notice that Jesus does not end with, end the sentence with, don't do your religion in front of people, period. The fact that it's public is, is not the problem. After all, Jesus already told us, if you remember in Matthew 5, he already told us what we we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be what? We're supposed to be salt of the earth and light of the world. And he says we're to be light of the world so that others can see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. So the public nature of our service is not the problem. The problem is not about our our audience who's listening in, no matter how big it is or not, the problem is with our hearts. The problem is that we, we secretly want to be seen, not for God's glory, but for ours. So instead of wanting others to see our good deeds like like the light of the world Jesus talks about, instead of wanting others to see our good deeds and then let that flow into the glory of the Father, sometimes we only want others to see our good deeds and then to stop right there and to think well of us. That's the sin of vain glory. And that's why Jesus ends his, his thesis statement, his first sentence here, by getting at our motives. Don't practice your religion in front of people in order to draw their attention. You see, it is the sin of vainglory that uses religion to prop up our vanity by showing others how great we are. It's the sin of vainglory that says out loud, to God be the glory, but then harbors in one's own heart the desire for personal greatness. And it's the sin of vainglory that is especially problematic for church people, for church leaders, and for pastors. As fourth-century theologian John Cassian once wrote, one who would not be taken in by the vices of the flesh, you know, things like drunkenness and sleeping around and so forth, one who would not be taken in by the vices of the flesh, listen to this, can be all the more vulnerable to vainglory. Why? because they are the ones who are tempted to think they are better than others, that their spiritual lives are superior to those who fail in obvious ways. That's the vice of vainglory. For this reason, Jesus asks us to seriously examine the things that that drive our religious behavior. Be careful, Jesus says. He calls into question the tendency and, and the next three illustrations, he calls into question the tendency to use our religion, again, to boost one's ego, to improve our reputation, even to use religion to mask our own insecurities. Now I want to I poke around at that one. The way we use religion to mask our own insecurities. You see, that's That's the real tragedy behind the vice of vainglory. The sin of vainglory, you know, we might think it's about people being um, uh, um, arrogant and prideful, and um, that's true, but when you peel back the layers, all of this is rooted in our insecurities. Put differently, it's rooted in the lie that our worth is determined by others' opinions. Our worth is determined by others' opinions. That's the lie that leads to vainglory. So I struggle with vainglory when I believe my value is determined by others' assessment. And if that assessment is negative, then it's devastating to my sense of self. If I don't perform well, I don't feel worthy of love. That's the, the sensitive underbelly of vainglory. It's actually rooted in insecurity. So here's how this plays out in our relationship with God. If we find it too hard to believe that God actually loves us no matter what, we will then try to convince ourselves that we are worthy of God's love by the many good things we do. Let me give that to you again. If you find it too hard to believe that God loves you deeply and unconditionally, You will then try to convince yourself that you are worthy of God's love by the many good things you do for God. This is what undergirds the pride of vainglory. It's insecurity. It's not trusting in God's deep love for you. But I'm here today to tell you that vainglory is unnecessary. It's unnecessary because God does personally love each and every one of you, no matter what. Because God considers you a creature of unimaginable worth and incredible value, apart from what you accomplish. And if you believe that's true, then you have just rendered vainglory toothless. There's no need for it anymore, because we don't don't need others to speak well of us when we know that we are of unspeakable worth to God. So that's why Jesus wants to drive out all tendency towards vainglory in the church. And that's why he has the power to do it, because he's bringing in fullness God's love to us. Just like Jesus drove out the cattle, remember this scene the, the, uh, before his crucifixion? Just like he drove out the cattle in the temple when the place of prayer had become a den of robbers, so does Jesus intend to drive out vainglory. In the church. I can't speak for all churches everywhere, but in some respects, perhaps in many respects, the American church has become a den of robbers, obsessed with image, hungry for power, blind to its own vanity. Jesus wants to cleanse us once more from our vanity, from our vainglory, So be careful, he says, be careful that you don't practice your religion in front of people in order to draw their attention, in order to be seen and noticed by them. The the message paraphrase, I love this one, message paraphrases it like this, listen to this, he says, be especially careful when you're trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. So that's the thesis statement. It cues us to the centrality of the heart and the necessity of examining our secret motives. And then Jesus provides three examples. So let's move through each of these in turn. The first example, the first illustration he uses to, 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 to make his point, is about our, about our charitable contributions, about our giving to the poor. So Matthew 6, verse 2, if you have your Bibles open, you I uh, direct you to Matthew 6, verse 2. So hear the word of the Lord once more. Whenever you give to the poor, don't blow your trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may get praise from people. I assure you that's the only reward they'll get. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you might give to the poor in secret." Your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. So here is the first of Jesus' three examples. Three examples of people doing good things with the intention of being praised by others. In this case, it's about charitable giving, financial stewardship, giving money to the poor. And Jesus starts with the the extreme example of a trumpet blower. Now, This may have literally happened in Jesus' day. You know, some Pharisee walking around about to give a good gift and, you know, has people blowing trumpets. Or this may have been Jesus using an exaggeration to make a point. We're not sure, but either way, the point is clear enough. There were religious people in Jesus' day that made a big deal out of their financial gifts, they wanted everyone to know about these gifts. That was in Jesus' day. I'm sure that kind of thing never happens anymore today. Now, do you think their motivation was entirely self-serving? These trumpet-blowing givers? I don't think so. I think I think part of their part of the motivation of these of these big givers came from a pure heart. I really do. I think I think they really wanted to further God's kingdom on earth. But the problem was that They also had other motives. Their heart was not integrated, complete, whole. Therefore, while they wanted God's glory, they also wanted a little bit for themselves. They wanted the praise of others. They wanted to be known in the community as the givers with deep pockets. They wanted to hear the gratitude of their pastors and civic leaders. Wow, you are so generous. Thank you so much. That's the praise they want when they offer their gifts. They want it so badly because at the core of their hearts, they are insecure. In the secret place, they, they wonder if they'll be loved if they're not giving. Jesus responds to their divided hearts with these words. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. In other words, these trumpet-blowing givers will, in fact, receive what they wanted, which is the praise of men. But it will come at the cost of not receiving the praise of God. And they will never know the security that comes to the heart that knows the generosity of God's love. So that's the first illustration. Now, let's, let's move on to the positive part of this illustration. First, he starts with the negative. Um, don't be like these people, but then the positive. So he tells us not to be like the hypocrites, okay? Um, and by the way, this word hypocrites, it's, it's used uh, often in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It does not refer to what we think of the term, right? Uh, we think of, of a hypocrite um, as someone who's, you know, to use illustration in the Sermon on the Mount, someone who, who tells someone don't commit adultery, and then they, they go on and commit adultery themselves. That's not what the religious leaders were doing. They, they were actually not committing adultery. The problem was that the inside of their hearts did not correspond to their outside behavior. <laughs> While they did not commit adultery, the inside of their hearts were full of lust. So that's what Jesus is getting at, Okay. He doesn't want us to be like the hypocrites, those whose outside does not match their inside. Jesus telling us, He's telling us not to be like that. He's calling us to live wholeheartedly, authentically, with integrity. So when it comes to giving, He says, "Don't let let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may give to the poor in secret. And your father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you." So that's that's the positive part. So. So what's Jesus talking about when he's referring to this left hand being ignorant of the right hand's actions? He's referring to the way that our giving ought to be a natural overflow of who we are as persons. Our hands don't do any thinking after all, whether they're giving or whether they're driving a car, another example. They, our hands just kind of do it naturally, Right? That's what's behind Jesus saying here. He wants us to become the kind of persons who give generously simply because we're generous people. Not because we've calculated what we can get out of it, not because you and I are secretly hoping someone notices, but just because we've become so grateful of the transformative mercy of God in our lives that generosity naturally overflows. Generous givers whose giving flows naturally from generous hearts. That's what Jesus wants us to become. That's the kind of person God takes notice of. That's the kind of person that catches God's eye. And here's the kicker, my friends. It took me a long time to learn this. It's actually a good thing to want God's attention in these matters. Hear me now. It's it's not that we are to avoid seeking recognition altogether. We all want recognition, right? We all want to be noticed for the good, hard work we do. That's not a bad thing. Jesus is just trying to change the person whose attention we're seeking. We naturally seek recognition from others. Jesus wants us to seek only the recognition of our Heavenly Father, who already loves us, and who will love us the same regardless of our religious performance. When we do that, our attention shifts from seeking the praise of other people to living before the audience of one, God. Can you just imagine how freeing it would be to live your life as if the only opinion that mattered was God's? (laughs) That freedom is the reward. It's the reward of an actual real life with God, the God of the universe cheering you on. That's what Jesus wants for you and me, to be so aware of of God that we can see him cheering us on as we do the right thing, regardless of what other people are going to think about it. Let's move on. So Jesus is teaching us how to live without vainglory. And one way to do that is to give in secret. A second way to do that is to pray in secret. So let's pick up with verse 5, Matthew 6. Listen to the Master's words once more. When you pray, don't be like hypocrites. They, They love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Public prayer is important. Jesus is not denying that. Again, I feel the need to reiterate that the issue is not with the outward action. It's with the inward attitude. Have you ever been comforted, moved, or given peace by someone else's prayer? Of course you have. Many of you have. I have too. It gives God glory when this happens. God is the one making it happen, bringing comfort and peace through our public prayers. To God be the glory. But a problem arises when the prayer is thinking more about how the prayer sounds than about the recipient of the prayer, God. So you see, when the prayer, when when the one praying wonders whether others will think they are good at praying, that's the problem. When when the one praying uh, wonders whether others will think they are especially holy on account of their praying, that's the problem. That's the problem of of vainglory, and Jesus is confronting this problem by giving us a new spiritual practice. It's the practice of solitude. Go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. That's the ancient spiritual practice of solitude, but it was new when Jesus commended it. So if you're not doing this spiritual practice of solitude, then please start. Because solitude is the chief discipline of the Christian faith. Without it, we simply cannot grow spiritually. If you're not doing it, start it. But don't be quick to tell everyone that you're doing it. (laughs) Because remember, secrecy is the key part. Eugene Peterson's insight here in the message is again spot on. Listen to his paraphrase of this passage. I just, I find this stunning. He writes, When you come before God, Don't turn that into into a theatrical production either. All of these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for 15 minutes of fame. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. That's what Jesus is trying to help us learn, my friends. He wants to shift our attention from ourselves to God, and he wants us to sense God's grace. To sense God's grace, like we sense the breeze blowing on a crisp fall day, that's what Jesus wants for us. But to get there, we have to learn how to live without vainglory, so that we can live for a higher calling, so that we can live for God's glory. So let's wrap this up with the third illustration. Jesus wants us to live without vain glory because he wants to show us the path of the abundant kind of life. One way to work on this is the practice of secret giving, then secret prayer, and the third way is to practice secret fasting. We're in Matthew 6, verse 16. And I'm regrettably skipping over the Lord's Prayer, but we did preach a longer series on the Lord's Prayer a while back, so I refer you there. Matthew six, verse sixteen. Hear one last time the words of Jesus. And when you fast, don't put on a don't put on a sad face, like the hypocrites. They distort their faces. So that people will know they're fasting. I assure you they have their reward. When you fast, brush your hair, wash your face. Then you won't look like you are fasting to people, but only to your Father who is is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So to fast is to deprive oneself of food and drink. It's a biblical practice, and it's commended by Jesus here. He's not condemning the practice of fasting. He's teaching us how to do it in the right way. And when you fast, he says. In today's world, fasting can be and ought to be expanded into other areas of life, like fasting from social media, which is a hub of vanity, (laughs) fasting from TV, from your smartphone, and so forth. But the point of Jesus' third and final illustration here isn't about fasting, strictly speaking. It's about the way religious people in Jesus' day, to borrow Willard's words, turned fasting into an exercise in exhibitionism and respectability. You know the people who are blogging about their 80-day fast, writing books about their 40-day fast. I don't know the intent of their hearts, but I wonder, as Jesus wondered, if they really want people to think that they're really holy. So as in the other two instances, so also here, the reason for the hypocrite's religious practice of fasting is to be seen by others and praised by others. They distort their faces so people will know they're fasting. My friends, this happens all over the place in the American church today. Pastors and church leaders perform for the crowd. They love to have their names on websites and Bible commentaries. They love to be retweeted on Twitter and followed on YouTube. They say they only want to expand the kingdom of God. But let me tell you a secret. They also want to expand their own kingdom of influence because it just feels so good to be admired and, dare I say, worshipped. Vainglory is rooted firmly in the hearts of such people. And it's ruining not only them, but it's also wrecking the hearts of all who follow them. Moreover, it's disfiguring and defacing the name of Jesus Christ in America. Vainglory. So what do we do about it? We learn from Jesus how to live without vainglory. We play for an audience of one. We pray for the Spirit of God to center and secure our hearts in God's love, which frees us from being controlled by the opinions of others. We pray the prayer of Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Now, I'm not perfect at this. In fact, I feel the danger of even talking about this in public. I have made so much progress in living without (laughs) vainglory. You see the problem? (laughs) The devil is always trying to twist our hearts back on ourselves. Even things we originally intend for God's glory (laughs) can be twisted later into vainglory. And it can happen through the most innocent of compliments. Great sermon, pastor. (laughs) Well, Well, thank you. Now, the only way I know out of this dilemma, for you and for me, is to experience again, to experience God's unconditional love in our hearts, to take God at his word when he tells us that we are of far more worth than every bird in the world. And it certainly won't hurt to pray again and again, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to God be the glory, really.